beginning was the Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory full of grace and truth. Hey, good morning. I want to invite you into something today as we look at these verses in John 4. I want to ask you before we read these verses over this this next time that we're together to place yourself in the position of this woman at the well. So I want you, as we read these verses, to, to kind of let your heart and your mind go into what you think that experience for her might be like, and to, to press into that space where you can just let God open your heart to what it would have felt like to her to be in that position. And, and as we go through this, hopefully you understand why I asked you to do that, but, but before we read, I want to invite you to, to kind of set your heart and your mind to really focus on her and to allow yourself to kind of be in that state and that place that she's in. So with that in mind, would you stand with me as we read John, uh, from John 4, verses 4 through 14? And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of land that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, tired from his journey, was sitting by the well, It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. So the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, though you are a Jew, are asking me for a drink, though I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus replied to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never be thirsty, but the water I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. Father, we thank you for this uh, story from your word, this encounter that your son had with this woman, and God, I just pray, this is a hard message, I just pray that, that you protect our hearts that doesn't feel accusatory or it doesn't feel uh, harmful. But I know, Lord, that this message will touch wounds that we all have and carry. And so, God, we need you to be the healer in this place today as we walk through this and to guard our hearts and minds with your truth. Let no lies creep in. And we ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, you can have a seat. So... Years ago, when we were at our church in Savannah, it was a big church, it was like 8,000 people at the time, and we did these huge Christmas and Easter productions, and, and I had just started coming to church. I was, I was 30, and I'd started coming to church there, and, and the senior pastor's wife was the director of the drama ministry, so she was the one that planned all these productions. Well, she had in her head, and she may be right, I don't know, but she had in her head that all angels, like, like Michael and the warrior angels, were all blue-eyed and blonde hair. 
So she saw a new blue-eyed, blonde-haired guy running around the church. She grabbed me and said, hey, we need you to be an angel in our Easter production. I'm like, all right, I don't... You know, I, don't, I don't know what's what, but I'll do it. So we're doing rehearsals, and, and these productions always had like songs, and it was, it was like Christian musicals, I guess, for lack of a better word. But we went to rehearsal, and the sound booth was locked. Nobody had unlocked the sound booth. And so she's trying to get in, and we couldn't rehearse because we couldn't play the tracks, and we couldn't get mics, and we couldn't sing songs, and everybody's trying to find somebody who has a key. Nobody has a key, so I walked over to her, and now mind you, I, I came to Christ when I was literally 30 years old. So I had a little bit of a history. And, and like many of you who came to faith as an adult, you kind of look around and you think everybody in church is a goody-goody and they don't have any history at all, right? Yeah, we do. <laughs> that's just, that's, sorry for all of you who grew up in the church from like birth to now, that's what we think of you as when we first come into church as adults. So just know that. But um, I had a little bit of a history. So I went up to, to Sarah Huxford, our drama director, our pastor's wife, and I kind of whispered in her ear and I said, look, if you really need to get in there, I can get in there. <laughs> and she said, I really need to get in there. I said, all right, well, just let me go up there by myself because nobody needs to know that I possess this skill. <laughs> so I went upstairs to the sound booth and I kind of played with the lock, popped the lock open. We got in the sound booth and, and came back down and She's like, oh, we got in, yay, it's great, we can start rehearsal, and then we got ready to start rehearsal, and she's praying for our rehearsal time, and, and then she says this in her prayer, and Lord, thank you for using breaking and entering as a spiritual gift. <laughs> in that moment, I knew that was the church for me. Not because they valued these essential life skills I picked up as the youngest of five kids who like to roam around and get in trouble, but because I knew she saw me as who I was becoming, not who I'd been. Made all the difference in the world. When you have a person see you as who you're becoming in Christ, it heals your shame. Your past falls away. And see, here's the thing. Shame is a universal experience. We all feel it goes back to Genesis 3-7. Look at this verse with me. The eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves waist coverings. That's the moment shame came into all of us. Through the introduction of sin, shame arrived. Adam and Eve ate the fruit because they bought the temptation that Satan gave them that said, you are not enough. If you eat this, you will be like God. The temptation that hit them from Satan was as you are standing here today, you are not enough. But if you do what God said don't do, you'll be like him. All of a sudden, you'll be adequate. And so that gives us the definition of shame that we're gonna work with this morning. Shame is believing that I am not enough and everybody else knows it. That's shame. I am not enough and all of you see it. And it, it governs our actions when it's not resolved. And so Satan convinced Adam and Eve that they were not enough. So they ate. And then real shame showed up. They ran, they hid. Now here's what I know as we talk about shame. This is a very nuanced topic. And shame has all these subtle fingers that reach deep down into so many places. And I cannot give you a full picture of that today because number one, you'd get hungry before I got done. And number two, you wouldn't let me come back next Sunday after a three-hour message. 
But I want us to see how shame, as we see it, is resolved in this woman at the well this morning. And so here's what shame is. First thing we need to know about shame, it did not exist before the fall. There was no shame prior to the fall. It's produced by the introduction of sin into the world and because sin coming in changed us and gave us a sinful nature, guess who gets to carry it? You and I. We all have it. Second, it can come from two places. It can come both from what I do but also what others do to me. And guess what? To reach probably 15 years old or older, you have both types of shame. You have shame from what you've done, but you also have shame from what others have done to you. And here's the third thing. Whether it comes from what you've done or what others have done, the result is the, shame, is the same. It tells me I am not enough, and other people see it. It drives us to isolate and hide. So here's the problem with shame. It breaks my connections with God and with others. So now we're gonna dive into this story of the woman at the well. I wanna invite you to keep yourself in her shoes as we walk through this. So the Samaritan woman in verse nine said to him, how is it that you, though you are a Jew, are asking me for a drink, though I am a Samaritan woman? Here's what's revealed in that question. This woman, woman is seeing herself and others through the lens of shame. Basically, she believes that Jesus sees himself as better than her because she's a Samaritan and he's a Jew. That's what shame does. Shame, because it is a feeling of being less than, assumes everyone else sees me as less than. This woman believes Jesus sees her as less than, so she instantly is defensive. The first words out of her mouth are a defense of herself. Now look at verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never be thirsty, but the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. Jesus is shifting Reality in a deep, deep way for this woman at this point. She feels dead inside. She feels abandoned, rejected, and isolated. Life is about connection to God and to others, and she doesn't have either. She's not living at all, and she hasn't been for quite some time because her shame means that she cannot connect to others, and she certainly can't connect to God. After all, all the godly people in her life have looked at her and rejected her. And so she projects that rejection that she has experienced from those who represent God in her mind onto Jesus at the very outset of this conversation. Her premise, God will never accept me, is flawed. Your premise, if you believe that God will never accept you, is flawed. And Jesus knows it because he is the very manifestation of God's love and acceptance in this woman's presence in this moment. So he's gently rejecting her flawed idea that God will never accept her. And he's replacing it with the truth that she is accepted in him. She feels dead inside because of her shame. And Jesus is saying, I can bring you back to life. I can bring you back to life by placing life in you. 
I can resolve and heal all those nagging thoughts that keep you awake at night, that drive you to avoid others at all cost, that make you feel like you have no choice but to come to draw water in the middle of the day instead of in the morning when all the other women you know are getting water and laughing and talking and connecting. Eternal life is a quality of life as much as it's a location of life. He's telling her, you can have this fountain of water springing up to eternal life in you right here and now. And it will not only redeem your shame, but it'll keep you from hiding. It'll connect you to God and others. And then listen to her response in verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw water. Think about that. She wants the water so she doesn't have to get water. She didn't quite get it yet because not having to come to get water would allow her to still not have to connect with others who were her source of shame in her mind. She instantly knows that she's not alive in her current state. She wants to live, but she doesn't want to live as a healed person. She wants to live as a person who still has shame and can avoid others. Jesus knows he'll alleviate that. So listen to what he says next, because she hasn't quite got it yet. She's flirting with it, but she hasn't got it yet. He knows the issue is shame. She's not willing to acknowledge it, and so he goes here. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, and said to him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one whom you have is not your husband. That which, this which you said is true. You remember her response? We'll get there in a second. Jesus is going right at the jugular of her shame. He's like a pit bull attacking the shame in her life and going right at the throat of it. Here's what I think. I think her shame is found in the fact that she's had five husbands. And I know that you've heard a lot of people talk about this verse and they always say, assume that the woman was the problem here. Ladies, I don't think so. Guys, I think it was men. Because here's the deal. We assume that this woman committed adultery. Can I tell you something? In her day, if you committed adultery, you got one shot at it because you would have been stoned. She would have never had husband number two if she was the problem. I think she was abandoned. I think she was rejected. I think she was pushed off. I don't see her as an adulterer. I see her as a woman like so many women in our society today that men come up to and say, you are not worthy of me. I'll mistreat you and I'll use you and then I will leave you. I think her shame might actually be rooted in the abandonment and the rejection as much as in the things she's done. Does that resonate with anybody in here? It's not so much about what you've done that brings you shame, but what others have done to you used you, rejected you, abandoned you. I also wonder if this abandonment is influencing her present decisions, her present living situation. 
I wonder if her abandonment wounds and the shame of being rejected that have made it okay in her mind to say, I'm never going to have another commitment in my life. She might be of the mindset that if I reject you before you reject me, it won't hurt so much. Maybe that's why she's living with a guy who's not her husband. Maybe she refuses to make another commitment because every other commitment has lived, ended with her being abandoned and kicked out. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Remember, shame breaks connections. Now we get to the good part, her response in verse 19, verse 19 and 20. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now let me stop right there for a second. If I came up to you and started enumerating your sins, you'd have a lot of things to call me. Prophet wouldn't be one of them. (laughs) Clearly what he said, he said with gentleness. Because he didn't say, sir, I perceive you are a jerk. Sir, I perceive you are judgmental. And then verse 20 goes on. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and yet you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one must worship. See, Jesus is getting too close to her woundedness, so she changes the subject. That's what good church people do. Keep the conversation about theology and doctrine. Don't bring the conversation to my hurts. We don't need to talk about all that. Jesus, let's talk about facts and truth, not my hurts and my wounds. We do that all the time. I actually think that's one of the biggest obstacles to healing in the church. We've all got wounds. You're not alone. We've all got them. We all have shame. It comes from Adam and Eve's decision. It's with you right now. And then when somebody gets too close to it, we go, oh, I I gotta leave that church. They're talking about freaky feeling stuff. Let me get out of here. And it shows up in our churches today the same way it showed up for this woman in this, as hyper-spiritualism. We make everything about spiritual, everything spiritual, except for what God wants to do in here. And so when Jesus begins to get too close, we decide, well, we have to have a conversation about facts and doctrine and theology. We have to have a conversation about beliefs. Let's have a conversation about baptism and communion. Let's have a conversation about what it means to be born again and the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and speaking in tongues because he's getting too close to my hurts and my wounds. Shame tells us that we're beyond repair, that we're beyond restoration, that we're beyond redemption. And so let me just talk about the facts for a minute. Instead of seeking to have an experience, a true, real, and deep encounter with the living Jesus who comes into my life and says, I want to touch you there. No, Lord, that's where the hurt is. I get it. I want to wound you in the wound so you can heal. No, 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 no. I think I need to find another church. It's all about liturgy all of a sudden. And so let's look at verse 23 and 24. Jesus responds to her, but a time is coming and even now has arrived when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so spirit and truth means that you must worship God from the inner parts of your soul. It's not an external act only. It's an interior act that changes my external behavior because that's where your true identity lives. 
who you are, just as we just sang, is in here. It's not out here. For that to be resolved, Jesus has to deal with me in here. And so worshiping him in spirit and truth actually reveals my true identity. It tells me I am God's beloved in Christ. And it shows me who God truly is, the healer of all things, the one who restores and resolves it all, even at the deepest places of my being. And guess what? Shame cannot stand in the face of your true identity that's experienced in the love, acceptance, mercy, and grace of Jesus. This is what makes him the only true healer. Nothing else will heal you the way he does. So are you still in this lady's shoes? Are you still there? Because it's about to get even better for her. Verse 25, it says this. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one speaking to you. Jesus said to her, I am he. What a powerful phrase. I don't think we understand just how powerful that is. I want you to fast forward with me to John 18 in, in verses four through six. So here's Jesus. He's in the garden of Gethsemane. He's about to be arrested. He's about to be tried and he's about to be killed. Now listen to starting in verse four. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that were coming upon him, came out into the open and said to them, who are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am am he. And Judas, also who was betraying him, was standing with them. That very same phrase that he said to this woman in private, he now says in public, in front of his apostles, in front of his accusers, in front of those arresting him. Now listen to verse 6. This is incredible. Now then, when he said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground they drew back and fell to the ground. His statement, I am he, caused the very soldiers who were armed and going to arrest him to fall down. That's what he said to the woman at the well. Everyone who represented the lies that they were telling about Jesus, who wanted to deny him and silence him, fell to the ground when he said, I am he. See, here's what happens. Shame speaks lies over us just as these guys were speaking lies over Jesus. They were saying, you are not who God says you are. Shame tells us you're not God's beloved. You are your failings and your sins and your rejections and your abandonments. Don't ever forget that. You're beyond redemption. You're ruined and everybody sees it. Then Jesus shows up and says, I am he. And what happens? That shame draws back and falls to the ground like those soldiers. I believe that's what this woman's shame did in that moment when he spoke that phrase, I am he. It stumbled backwards and it fell. And it was cast off of her and she was freed. She was freed to live. 
free to connect first with God and then with others, to live deeply and freely into her identity in Christ, in the Trinity, in the overwhelming mercy and grace of God because he said, I am he. Now look at verse 39. This is where it gets a little crazy. Now from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have ever done. So think about it. At the beginning of this woman's encounter with Jesus, she's getting water by herself at noon. Noon was not the time you went in this culture to go get water. Morning was the time you went. You didn't go get water at the hottest time of the day. You also needed water in the morning. Why would she do that? Because she was trying to avoid everybody she knew. She didn't want to be in front of people because all she found in the eyes of others was judgment and rejection and whispers about her character and her lifestyle. There she goes. She's had five husbands. You believe that? And now she's shacking up with some dude that's not even her husband. What's she doing coming down here when all the respectable women are coming to get their water? See, she knew she couldn't resolve her shame, but she felt like she could at least deny it if she didn't have faces looking back at her all the time, glaring at her, whispering as she walked by. So that's why she went in at noon. She's trying to avoid these people. Now all of a sudden, Jesus stands before her and says, I am he, and what does she do? She's running to the very people she's been trying to avoid. Shame convinced her that she had to avoid those same people that she's now going to and saying, I found the Messiah. And guess what? They're following her back. Isn't that interesting? Because that's what shame does to us. Shame tells me that all of you are judging me constantly. And then when it falls away, apparently they didn't think too lowly of her after all because they took her word and went for a long walk in the heat of the day to find the Messiah. See, that's what shame does. It taints your lens to make you think that people think of you in a way that they just don't think of you. And so we interact with them based on that shame, not on the reality of who they are and who we are. Now, why did she believe he was the Messiah? Because he said she had five husbands? No. When he said that, she thought he was a prophet. She went and said, I found the Messiah, I believe, because she found healing in her shame. When she was standing before him and he reached into the deepest places of her soul and let that phrase, I am he, resonate in there, she found healing. She found herself restored instantly to a right relationship with God. She experienced her identity, maybe for the first time ever, certainly in a long time, as being God's beloved in Christ, and it freed her from the identity of I am ruined and beyond repair, and everybody can see it. Was she forgiven? Yeah. Was she saved? Yeah. Did she receive that fountain of water springing up to eternal life? Yes. But what it did in her was wash over her identity and restore it. That's what freed her to be fully alive now. She became a resident of the kingdom there in that moment to live it out here 
because her shame was gone and her identity was restored. One of the saddest things in church to me is those of us who are in the kingdom of God who will not accept the identity that we are his beloved in Christ and so we live like her in our shame waiting to die. (laughs) because I have no expectation that after I draw my last breath on earth, I will feel a glimpse of shame anymore. But I'm gonna cling to it as hard as I can right here now. Because I just don't believe that God's gonna redeem and restore me. He's gonna do that for you, but you don't know my history. You don't know that I developed at the early age into the kind of person who would find picking locks useful. You didn't know that, did you? (laughs) There's a lot of other stuff. But can I tell you that every Christian in this room has a history that's been redeemed and restored? And if you think you're the only one with one when you walked in here, you're wrong. Get to know somebody, hear their story. There are some crazy fools in this room. (laughs) There's one. There are some people in here that could tell you stories that would make your skin crawl. And yet they don't live in it because Jesus stood before them and said, I am he, and that shame went away. Now here's the question. Did she still struggle with living out of this identity and not shame? I am absolutely certain she did. How can I be so sure? Because she was a human being. Having it resolved one time and choosing not to walk back into it are two different things. It takes a long time to get in the habit of not living out of shame. It takes a long time to learn what it looks like and feels like to walk in your identity as God's beloved in Christ in everything. It's a lot easier to step out of that right back into that shame-driven life. She had experienced this life ruled by shame. And even if just for one moment she had a taste of a life not ruled by it, not because of who she was or who she wasn't, but because of Jesus' identity as I am he, he who loves and heals and restores and redeems, who like my pastor's wife Sarah, sees me as who I'm becoming not simply as who I've been. Shame says that you are less than and everybody sees it. Jesus says I am he and because of that you're the beloved of my father. You're my brother in him. You are actually more than enough in me. And so what are we supposed to do with all this? Well, the first thing we all have to do is we need to find the places where shame lives and rules in our own lives. And if you think you don't have it, then you're not a child of Adam. And if you're not a child of Adam, we have a problem. Like men in black, there's aliens among us. First thing we gotta do is find a place where that shame lives. Then we need to meet Jesus there in that shame. Because you cannot find healing from shame and denying shame. (laughs) Denial doesn't heal. And so the practice that we need to invite Jesus into with us is the practice of confession so that he can come into our 
shame and our brokenness and stand in that and say, I am he. He who what? He who forgave you. He who took your punishment. He who remade you. He who redeemed you. He who renewed you. He who set you free. He who has adjusted your identity so that you know who you are in me and not in the world. That's the he he is. And so here's what we do. We bring in confession. We bring all of our shame and our failings before God and we just let him speak to it. Now you need to understand when I say confession, I'm not talking about the type of confession where I go before God with my list. Here's all the stupid stuff I did. Here's all the bad stuff, the sinful stuff, the horrible stuff. That's not confession. I'm talking about the kind of confession that acknowledges all the ways that my sinful nature actually rules in my life. Those sins are just the symptoms. The places where my sinful nature rules are the disease. We want him to cure the disease, not alleviate the symptoms. And so I come to him and say, here are the places where my sinful nature rules my life, and I need you in those places. I need you to speak who you are over those things. See, I love the Greek word for confession. It's the word homologeo. It literally means to speak the same word, to agree. It literally does not mean to sit and spew a laundry list of things. And so what am I agreeing to when I go into confession? What am I agreeing with in confession? It's simply this. I agree with God that I am a sinner and my sin brings death and I need the living water that is Jesus. That's all confession is. I'm gonna agree with you what you say about my sin and what you say about my redemption. I agree with Jesus as I am he, that in him I'm restored and I'm renewed, that in him I'm God's beloved, in him I am more than enough in God's eye. That's what confession is. And so I wanna invite you into practicing confession this week. And just know this, confession is simply sitting before God and laying the places where your sinful nature still rules your life out on the table with him at the foot of the cross without justification, without minimization, without rationalization. It's acknowledging that I can't do anything about those things, but also acknowledging that he has removed my sin from me, that I can go forth in his mercy and grace and live out the life of the spirit instead of the life of the flesh that I'm freed to live in connection with him and others because my shame has been washed away and my identity is simply I'm his beloved in Christ. We've got several things going on around here that can help you find this healing deep within yourself. One of them is emotionally healthy spirituality. Keep an eye out for that when it starts, sign up. We've got an emotionally healthy women's group that just started does the same thing. We're bringing Bill and Christy Galtier, Journey of the Soul and Soul Shepherding Ministries for that same reason. See, if Jesus is who we say that he is, then we should actually be healing. And if we are not healing, then how do we invite a wounded and lost world to come find healing? It won't work. And so at the end of this service, when our prayer partners come down here, maybe you want somebody to pray with you to just say, hey, I need this. I need this sense of shame that I've carried around for a long time to be washed away. 
Invite God into that. Maybe you just want to come down and say, hey, I need this Jesus. I need this I am he. I haven't had that I am he. Will you help me pray with me into that relationship? Whatever it may be, you're going to have an opportunity to address that today. But know this. The only way to let Jesus stand in what is truly in you is through this act of confession. I think sometimes we look at confession and we look at it as a transaction. Lord, I confess, now you must forgive. I confess, now you must forgive. When the reality is, hey, you're forgiven. You were forgiven at the cross. Question is, are you living in it? Well, no, I'm not fully living in it. Lord, how do I live in it? Ah, come to me. Help, let me help you see that the shame that you feel is your identity is not your identity at all. So I'm gonna pray and we're gonna sing another song, but I wanna invite you to come down to pray with somebody if you're struggling with this idea of shame or if you just want Jesus to step into your life more. You'll have an opportunity to do that at the end of the service. Father, we're so grateful that you heal in all things. And Lord, I know, I know that this, this healing that Jesus offered this woman is still available to us. It's a healing of saying, hey, I know who you think you are, but that's not who you are. Now make a choice to live in it. And then when it comes back up that you think you are your shame, choose again to live in your identity as my beloved in Christ. And so, Father, that's what we want. We want rivers of living water to well up in here, in our own hearts, to spill out of this place to our community and to our families and our schools and where we work. But Lord, we know it starts with being people who are made well by placing all that's broken and wounded in our shame in front of you and letting you stand in front of it and say that powerful phrase, I am he, and watch it all fall away. So God, I pray you do that for each of us during this song. You do that after this service when we pray. You do that in every interaction. And you continue to do that through this week as we go into our lives. Amen.